couple of years ago, I saw a very unusual sight. I saw a man who was riding his bicycle across a busy intersection. He was riding while he was looking backwards. He's riding his bicycle while he's looking backwards. This was amazing to me because he was going block after block, riding, looking backwards. Do you know what that looks like? I have a little picture I want to show you. Put this slide up here. Here's a picture of a man riding his bicycle. He's going across an intersection. He's looking backwards. Doesn't that look unusual? I thought to myself, that man is never going to get where he's going if he keeps looking backwards. How is he going to know where he's going? I have another picture to show you. Next slide. We have a couple of kids. They're so cute. They're riding their bicycles and they're riding towards each other. A wonderful scene. Now, what would happen if one or both of those children started riding their bicycles while they're looking backwards? What do you think would happen? Well, they'd have an accident. One last slide. Here's somebody else. Here's a family of five on a tandem bike. Isn't that great? Five people on one bicycle. Dad's in front leading the way and he's looking forward the way a dad should. Now, what do you think would happen if he started to ride that bicycle while he's looking backwards? Well, the whole family would eventually crash. Well, what's the point? The point is that it's not a good idea to look backwards when we're trying to head into the future. And the Bible talks about this. What is the biblical support for this view? Well, in Genesis 19, we read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is where Lot was living with his wife. God was going to destroy the towns. He said, Lot, go away from here. And his instructions were, do not look back. Well, guess what? Lot's wife looked backwards and she became a pillar of salt that we read in verse 26. In the book of Numbers, chapter 14, we see the Israelites complaining to Moses and Aaron. They're saying, oh, if we could only go back to Egypt where we had it wonderful. This so angered God that he said he was going to destroy them in verse 12. Well, what about the New Testament? In Luke 9, Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying to the disciples that their former way of following God is over. With Jesus, there is no going backwards. And then Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize, which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. God wants us to keep looking forward and not backward. Do you know why? Why does he want us to keep looking forward? Do you want to know? It's because he has plans. He has plans for each one of us. And those plans are in the future. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. If we only look backwards in life, we will never learn the plans that God has for us because we won't be in a position to see them. And while that's true for us as individuals, that also is true for this church. We must look forward. Well, today we're going to take a look at some of the plans that God has for our church. And we're going to look at those plans through the avenues of context and character. Now, these are really huge, huge topics, and I can only give you a surface view of these things. But specifically, we're going to take a look at the context 
through which ministries of the church are affected. And we're going to take a look at what is the overall character that the church displays as it approaches its ministries. In other words, with today being kickoff Sunday, the start of a new church year, the start of new ministries, we're going to look at the big picture. So sharpen your pencils and hook up your safety belt, because here we go. In the area of context, we find that there's three primary purposes of the church of which Jesus Christ is the head. Purpose number one, it's to exalt God. Number two, it's to edify the church. And three, it's to evangelize the world. Or another way of putting it is, it's for followers of Jesus to meet corporately and worship God, as we do on Sunday mornings. Two, it's for followers of Jesus to be informed and equipped. Key word, to be equipped to live the life in Christ. And three, for followers of Jesus to share the gospel with everyone. Or another way that we can put it is, to reach seekers and equip followers to be influencers for Jesus. Does that sound familiar? That's the purpose statement of our church. Not only is that the purpose statement of our church, that is the overarching purpose of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some other things that churches do. Some churches sometimes become involved with preschool programs, for example. Sometimes they'll provide personal care and benevolence funds, those kinds of things. But churches are not the only agencies that provide those kinds of services. There are many secular and private preschools that are in existence. Also, there's an entire industry that is dedicated to the health and well-being of people. And there are also private and government programs to provide benevolence to people who have somehow fallen through the cracks. In these areas, as well as a few others, the church is not alone. That's not exclusive to us. But the purposes of worshiping God, becoming equipped, and sharing the gospel to a lost world are not only unique to the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, that is the mandate of the church. Because if we don't do those things, if we don't do those things, who will? Jesus has given his church both purposes and a mandate. And in those, we both have hope and a future. One thing we need to consider, though, that it's always possible to concentrate all of our energies on just one of those purposes at the expense of the others. As a result, there's certain downsides that, come, that become traps for the church. And just like we all have strengths and weaknesses, usually our weaknesses stem out of the downsides of our strengths. And well, likewise, in all the purposes of the church, there are both positives and negatives, depending upon where the focus of the church is. It's important that we have a good plan. Now, if the church falls into one of those traps, there's a, a good chance that it can become sidetracked, maybe even become stagnant. I'm going to give you some examples. First of all, in the area of worship. This is the corporate body that is gathered together to offer thanks and praise to God. Well, the positive side of this is that when we focus on worship, we are placed in a right relationship with God as we recognize and, and, and acknowledge his greatness when we compare it to our meekness, if we never worship God, we will never approach seeing him for who he is and seeing ourselves for who we are. But there's also, believe it or not, a negative side to worship. If we end up devoting the, the church exclusively to worship, if it becomes the preoccupation of the church at expense of everything else, then it becomes a short path to what we call the worship wars. Or to say it another way, what happens is we become more involved with worshiping worship or worshiping how we worship rather than worshiping God. And sadly, it usually revolves around the music in the church, whether or not we get to hear our favorite songs 
All the while, we forget the point. It's not for us to be pleased. It's for God to be pleased. Well, what kind of music pleases God? Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. The point is there are many kinds of worship music and God likes them all. In light of that, we don't need to have the worship pours taking place here. Now, in the area of equipment, this is where the individual believer learns about what it means to be living the life in Christ. There's a wonderful positive side to this. When we focus our efforts on becoming equipped, learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we become like Mary, as we read about her in, in Luke chapter 10, as she sits at Jesus' feet, having chosen what is better to hear the words of Jesus and to follow in the footsteps of the master. Last week, Pastor Randy gave a wonderful message comparing Mary and Martha. But while there's a wonderful benefit to this, there's also a downside. We need to be aware of that. The main trap of having a preoccupation with equipping is that we forget that we're being equipped to actually do something. We're supposed to do something with what we've learned. In other words, we're supposed to be equipped for action. It's not just the acquiring of knowledge. That's not the end of it. Now, a little example we can find, this is hinted at in the, in, the, in the story of the Transfiguration, Matthew 17. This is a situation where Jesus has gone up a hill. He's brought his three top disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. And at the top of the hill, Jesus is transfigured. He becomes glowing white. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appears with him. And it's a wondrous sight. And all up until this time, Jesus has been explaining to his disciples and teaching his disciples, discipling his disciples. And in this moment, the disciples have no idea what they're supposed to do. Peter comes up to Jesus and says, well, shall we make three booths so that we might worship you? One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. Well, what is he thinking? This, this reveals that Peter is thinking back to, to the festival of the booths that we read about in the Pentateuch. Here is Peter who's putting his hand on the plow. He's looking backwards. And he gets a rebuke from it, from none other than Almighty God who says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Well, what does that indicate? It indicates that they weren't listening. Jesus said all kinds of things to the disciples. And among those, Jesus told them that they were going to do things. Matthew 10, 18 and 19. This is before the transfiguration. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. The trap is that we won't do what we're being equipped to do. A church that only involves itself in equipping and does nothing else is like a football team that memorizes the entire playbook, yet it never executes a single play. What kind of use is such a team? It's good for nothing. That's what James is talking about when he says faith without works is dead. He's not talking about trying to work your way into heaven. It's about applying your faith to the way in which you live your life. Not doing that is the trap. What about sharing the gospel? This is the individual believer as well as the corporate church as a whole. 
providing an opportunity for an unreached person to know and receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Well, there's, a, there's certainly a benefit. There's a positive side to this because we're doing what we're commanded to do, which is to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28. It's our opportunity to take part in the Great Commission and help expand the kingdom of God on earth. But as wonderful as that is, there's actually a downside we need to be aware of. Because if the church becomes preoccupied with evangelism alone, to the degree that it never disciples the new believer, it runs the risk of making lots of baby Christians who can very easily fall back into their previous lifestyles of sin. In other words, the trap is we neglect to finish the job. We need to finish the job. So there needs to be a larger picture in our worship life in order to avoid the worship wars. There needs to be powerful application and purposeful application in our equipping in order to avoid ineffective ministry. And there needs to be an element of discipleship in our evangelism in order to avoid possible apostasy. Now, all that being said and done, there's still reasons for hope in the future in all three of these purposes for the church. The hope for worship is that we will have God and God alone as the focus of our worship. And the future of worship is that God will enable us to learn more about him as we continue lifting him up and giving him the glory the hope for equipping is that we have many ministries in our church through which people can become equipped. It's not just one single way that you become uh, equipped in living the life in Christ. There are many ways and many ministries that can be accessed. And our future is that as God grows the church, that he'll also grow the ministries to enable more and more of us to learn what it means to live the life in Christ. And then the hope for evangelism is that every ministry in our church today has a fundamental foundation of evangelistic outreach all the way from our children's ministry through missions, youth, right up through the, uh, to, the, to the worship ministry. And the future of evangelism is that as we become bolder and more effective in sharing the gospel, that we will see hundreds of people coming to Christ right here at Wise Ed are Free. And for that, we'll give God the thanks and praise. Indeed, we have hope and we have a future. That's the context of our ministries. What about the character of the church? The character. This is how we view the church. This is how our attitudes are when we're affecting ministries. It's the overriding attitude displayed by the church as it affects ministry. Well, what kind of image comes to your mind when you hear the word church? You go back to your child and say, uh, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors. I did it wrong. I'll do it over again. There's all the people. Okay. Okay. How do we normally view the church? Do we think of a building? Do we think of this room? Is the church just a building? Is it a place where people go on Sunday morning? Is it an institution? Is it a social club? Does it have a definable mission? How do you view the church? What do you think the church is for? Why are we here? If I were to ask every one of us today, what kind of a church do you think we ought to have? And what do you think we ought to be doing? How many different opinions do you think I would get? Probably more than one or two, do you think? How many different views would we all have about the church? Now, in light of that, and this is where the rubber meets the road, because this can be challenging for us. We like having control ourselves. We like having our own opinions, our own views. Here's where the rubber meets the road. How do you think Jesus viewed his church? There's many passages in Scripture that reveal just that. 
And we're going to look at just one of those. So turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. You'll find it in your pew Bibles. It's on page 973. We'll also have slides overhead, too, if you wish to follow along that way. This is the famous passage that takes place in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asks the disciples, who are people saying that I am? And then finally, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's commended by Jesus. And then he says in just half of one verse how he expects his church to behave. We pick it up in verse 17, Matthew 16. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Now watch closely. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The King James Version reads, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I like that rendering a little bit better because it gives a little more accurate reading of the Greek. Will not prevail against it. Now, this is a passage that many people have discussed over time, specifically regarding the Greek rendering of Peter's name and the phrase, this rock. But regardless of those kinds of discussions, there are two main points that are unmistakably clear. One, Jesus said that he was going to build his church. He did not say that he was going to build Peter's church or anybody else's church. The church belongs to Jesus and no one else. It's Jesus church. This church is Jesus church Two, Jesus said that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, just think about that for a second. The gates of hell will not overcome it. First of all, what are gates? Gates are designed to do two things. They are designed to let people in and they keep people out. They're not offensive weapons. They're stationary. They don't move. No one would ever think of throwing a gate at somebody in a conflict. Yet there are many people who think that this passage means that Jesus of Jesus means that hell is going to throw its gates at the church and the gates will not prevail. That is an incorrect interpretation of what Jesus is saying here. You don't throw gates at the church. What about Hades? Hades is a Greek word. It translates to mean the underworld or the grave or the place of the dead. It's a place that is accessible by gates and it sometimes is also translated to mean hell jesus says that the gates of this place are not strong enough to withstand his church in other words the church is meant to break down the very gates of hell that is what jesus is saying what jesus is describing is a church that is in motion it's not a church that is a stagnant it's not the gates that are in motion it's the church it's the church that's on the move. It's not a church that's stagnant. It's a church that is engaging the opposition, engaging the adversary. It's a church that Jesus says will ultimately be victorious. Victorious. How is that possible? Romans 8, 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That means it can no longer touch us. We've been set free from it. So in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus is indicating that he has infused his church with a dynamic force. The message puts it like this. This is the rock on which I will put together my church. 
a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. Wow. What does a church like that look like? I want to show you something. This is a video clip from the early days of the war in Iraq. And I streamed it off the Internet, so it's a little bit grainy, but I think you'll still be able to see what the imagery is. This is the day that the British Marines came into town. And you're going to see a couple of things. You're going to see Marines taking sledgehammers to the doors of Saddam Hussein's palaces. But the real image that I want you to remember, that I want burned into your mind this morning, is the last image. You're going to see an armored truck with British Marines in it that literally smash through the gates of one of Saddam Hussein's palaces. Please watch the video screen overhead. Go ahead, Pat. Dawn in Basra today, and Challenger tanks rumble through the ornate gates of the main presidential palace. The assault on Iraq's second city is just hours old. The tanks and the Marines behind them aren't stopping. Push forward across the most symbolic ground in southern Iraq, this palace the seat of Saddam's power here, power that the Marines are smashing away. Different building, different way in. If a hammer won't do, try this. Breaking down the gates of hell. Now, we don't usually think about a church doing those kinds of things, do we? But this is exactly what Jesus expects his church to do. Well, how are we supposed to accomplish that? I mean, after all, you can't exactly Google the gates of hell or find it on MapQuest. I can't show you where the gates are. So how are we supposed to overcome them? Here's how we overcome them. We overcome the gates of hell whenever we are effectively living out the three purposes of the church. That being worshiping God and God alone, becoming equipped and equipping others and sharing the gospel. When we do those things, we begin to overcome the very gates of hell. We overcome the gates of hell when we engage in authentic worship of God. Through worship, we publicly acknowledge that it is God and God alone who is worthy of our praise. Jesus made that very clear at the end of his time of temptation when he shouts to the devil, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's why it's so important for all of us to participate in worship and not just be a spectator. Don't let someone else do your worshiping for you. It's one of the ways we break down the gates of hell. We overcome the gates of hell when we become equipped and when, when we're equipping others. And we do that by proclaiming the truth of God's word. One of the main weapons that Satan uses against us is distorting scripture. It's called lying. In Genesis 3, God says to Adam and Eve that if they eat the fruit of a certain tree that they would die. Satan deceives Eve by changing what God said. God said, you will surely die. Satan says, you will not surely die. And so Eve falls into sin 
and Adam along with her. When we make the truth of God's word understandable, we are literally knocking down the gates of hell by taking away one of Satan's main weapons against us. Lastly, we overcome the gates of hell when we share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Now, we all know people who are heading for those gates. Friends, neighbors, family members, co-workers. The mission of the church is to break those gates so they can't be entered. And we do that by intervening and introducing a person to Jesus Christ so that they might pass from death into life. Having once faced a Christless eternity, they now become part of the family of God. That's how we break the gates of hell. So Jesus' church is a church that's in motion. And if, church, if this church is going to break the gates of hell, something very important is necessary. Jesus' church requires your involvement. Or if you want to personalize it, if you're keeping notes in your bulletins, you might want to write down the words, my involvement. Jesus' church requires my involvement. Just like the soldiers in that video, the soldiers who are in the truck, we all need to be in the truck together. We need to be in this truck together. And if some of us haven't yet gotten into the truck, on this kickoff Sunday, today, year 2006, it's time to get into the truck. Why? Paul writes in Romans 10:13, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In order for that to happen, you need to be involved. The ways that we help to bring the good news is by supporting the ministries of this very church one of the ways that we do that is by praying. We do it by praying. So pray. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our ministries. Pray for our elders. Pray for God's plan for a new pastor for our church. We can all pray. Another way that we support the ministries of this church is by giving. We need faithful giving even more right now, now that we're in a time of transition. So give. Give as God has first given to you. One of the easiest things that you can do to support the church is to give financially. So please, give. And lastly, the most strategic way that you can support the ministries of the church is by participating in one of them. I spoke with pastoral staff this last week, and one by one, by and large, what is most needed are people. What is needed are you. You are needed. Children's ministries needs both teachers and helpers. Youth ministries need people who have a passion for youths. Our missions ministries need people to go to the and bring the gospel overseas on short-term missions trips. And our church at home here is in desperate need for ushers and greeters, the very face of our church on Sunday morning. In your bulletin today, there's a brochure. It looks like this. Take it out right now, would you? Sometime today, I'd like you to look through this. This is a brochure that describes many of the ministries in our church. Every single one of them needs your help. So please make the decision today. Make the decision to get in the truck. Take part in one of the ministries, otherwise that are free. Now, some of us are chomping at the bit. We can't wait. Some of us might be hesitating. 
Now, believe me, if, if, if you're feeling hesitating today, I, I understand that. There's many reasons for that. Maybe some of you feel as though you're not able to take part in the ministry. Maybe you feel as though you're not qualified or that you're not gifted or that you're not good enough. Maybe you're just scared. Well, I have one more word of hope and future for you today. You see, all through the Bible, we see that God made use of people who are not perfect. In fact, some of, if some of them were in fact, some of them are so imperfect that if they were alive today, we wouldn't allow them to be on our elder board. Yet God used them and God used them powerfully. For example, what about Noah? Noah was found drunk in his tent. Noah was an alcoholic. If God could use an alcoholic like Noah, he can use you. What about Abraham? Abraham lied to two different kings about his wife. Abraham was a liar, but God used him. If God can use a liar like Abraham, God can use you. What about Moses? Moses had a speech impediment. Plus, he killed somebody, yet God used him. If God can use someone with a handicap like Moses, God can use you. Then consider Rahab. Who was Rahab? She was a, a street woman. She was a prostitute in Jericho, yet God used her. In fact, we read about her in chapter 11 of, of Hebrews. She's listed in what we call the Hall of the Faithful. If God can use a prostitute like Rahab, God can use you. And then finally, there's the disciples. Well, who were they? They were uneducated people. They were fishermen. Yet God used them. Peter in particular, the one that Jesus called the rock. We talked about him earlier in the message today. Who was Peter? Peter denied Jesus. Denied him three times. When he could have shown support for Jesus, he turned his back on Jesus. In the time of crisis, Peter was faithless. Yet God used him. At the end of that story, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he gathers his disciples together. He brings Peter before him. And he asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I do. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. If God can use someone like Peter, he can use anyone, including us. And that is our hope. That is our future. We have a mission. We have a purpose. And we have the mandate. Now is the time. Now is the time to get in the truck and do some gate crashing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this new year of ministry. Thank you, Father, for your church. Thank you for this church. And thank you for the many ways that you have had your hands on this place and upon these people. And Father, as we look ahead to the coming days, as you grow your church and as you grow us, help us all to better understand what it means to be the church that you envision. Help us to do the things that you want us to do and to be the people that you want us to be. Thank you for giving us hope. 
thank you for giving us future. Father, if you can use anyone, you can use us. In Jesus' name.